your word won't be wonky this morning, David. Don't worry. And um, I'll just uh, <laughs> wonky trans. I'll just pray for you. <laughs> um, guys, uh, this is. I think this is the last one in our joining, connecting the dots, joining the dots, dot to dot. So, guys, if, if you've missed any weeks, I just encourage you to catch up online. They should all be available, so um, you can catch up there. So it's been a really great series, and just the, the wisdom that um, David's been unpacking has just been uh, very profound, so I encourage you to do that. But, Lord, um, thank you for David. Thank you um, for the time that he's put into this, Father. And I just pray that, um, I pray that you'll speak through him this morning. Uh, we thank you for his wisdom, Father. We thank you for what you've done in his life. Um, yeah, we just pray that... Uh, your, um, your, your Holy Spirit will open our ears um, this morning, Father. Amen. Okay. Thanks, Phil. <coughs> yeah, we've, um, this is the last one we thought, I think most people thought we'd finished last time, uh, the message, because that was the end of the actual foreshadows. But we need an epilogue. Um, I've just got here with my last Sunday morning message. That was called Family Gatherings or the Feasts. And we explored there the final one of these seven foreshadows, a masking uh, through biblical Israel, the mystery of God's master plan through the ages. Purposefully, each week connecting the dots through these shadows of things to come that we started with, has gradually opened up to us a bird's eye view of scripture. Um, primarily at the core, one seamless narrative from beginning to end, in, in a kind of biblical love letter from God. Um, the one who was, we saw, and is, and is to come. Uh, and it reveals his story to build a family of faith who will live with him forever. So the subtitle of our last family gathering's message was, it's all about going home. However, at the beginning of our series nine weeks ago, it's actually 10 weeks, I think, I mentioned that although this series would be about God's grand story, it would also be about seeing how our own story, the one God wrote for each of us individually is woven into this, this bigger story of his. Because, you know, this, this king of the universe has not only crafted a grand narrative, but he's also invited each and every one of us to play our part in it. And in the w first week's introduction of our Connecting the Dots series, I quoted a verse from, uh, I think it was Psalm 139 verse 16 and it's where King David tells the Lord that all the days all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be and I remember saying at that time that just as King David realized that all the days ordained for him were written before one of them came to be and that everything which happened to him on his journey was simply preparation for the next role in his life. So my hope for this series 
was that we might realize that God has written a personal story for each one of us also, because he has, and that our story is important enough to intersect his bigger story. Because, you know, there's nothing better than to awaken to that truth. It's, uh, it's something about obedience, uh, and in, in his timings, it depends solely on our, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. So this final message in our Connecting the Dots series today, if we can get the first, with nothing there? Not working today. <gasps> Is he joking? He always jokes, doesn't he? Do you think he's... You're serious. Oh, no. Okay. Right. So we'll have to just listen. Um, okay. So, as I say, this final message in our Connecting the Dots series today is going to now be all about our parts in God's story, yours and mine. And so the last message is called Coming Out of the Shadows. And I've given it a subtitle of The Journey is Just as Important as the Destination. And we'll see later on how that works. And the reason that our journey is just as important as the destination uh, and of major importance to God is that our journey of faith is a, a vital contribution to the telling of his story. And because we, we are called Christ's bride, uh, the body of Christ here, we're part of the body of Christ for those who believe. Every one of us is used as a, a feature character in this beautiful love story which God wrote before the coming of time. The trouble is this time, this time business which keep, keeps us from seeing the whole story from beginning to end. As humans we're all stuck in time, aren't we? And we've no influence over because we're all co caught up in this web of space and matter and time, you and I have only got a short role in this pretty crazy story on Earth. And it's really short. You know, compared to the, the, the countless eons uh, involved in God's uh, story, uh, in his, uh, he is out of time. That's why he can see every detail of the, the story outside of time. That's why um, in, in the, t the timeline he chooses, he can pick up at any point. But because we can't see the whole story from beginning to end, it's first of all why God made us in his image. And he set eternity in our hearts. It's Solomon, the son of King David, who tells us about it. This is in Ecclesiastes, a book that he wrote, chapter 3 and verse 11. And he said, just checking. No. <laughs> okay. He said, he, that's God, has also set eternity in the hearts of men. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. And what is it we can't fathom from beginning to end? Well, the, the answer is the beginning to end of God's story. That's why he set eternity in our hearts so that intuitively we know there's more, of, more to life than the physical world we live in and why God has given us this beautiful book, the Bible, which is ultimately, I suppose, it's a really a sneak pre preview of the whole story. In a sense, the Bible can be compared to a spiritual 
Reader's Digest version of the big story. Um, and it's this that is why God tapped a very special group of people, the nation of Israel, to play the, the role of his biblical family in the, in the big story, to provide an accurate, prophetic roadmap showing us where God's story is headed. That's why when we recognize the potential of these seven uh, major foreshadows we've been looking at, we unveil the mystery of God's plan to establish an eternal family. Yes, but beyond that, it's important to grasp that each of these seven foreshadows we've been looking at uh, are not just collective pictures. They're not just collective pictures of the redemptive and transformative gospel theme throwing through, uh, flowing through every episode of God's story, but also they're that which flows through the picture of our individual story. It's when we understand how we individually fit into the foreshadowed context of our current episode at this moment that we're able to see how our individual faith journey plays such an important role in God's story. You see, just as King David realized, realized that all the days ordained for him were written in God's book before one of them came to be, so, and it's something I looked up, a journalist called Alex Tizon once said, he said the fact that all people have within them an epic story is true because it's God, it's not us, it's God who has written each of our epic faith stories of redemption and transformation. When we understand this about our own transformation, we point others to the path of redemption. And so today, what I'd like to do to help each of us in a practical way, as it were, according to this title, come out of the shadows, I want to describe two life-defining narratives that are common to everyone's journey of faith. It doesn't matter who it is, these two life-defining narratives are common to everyone's journey. Because it's when we recognize the reason for these two narratives in our lives that we can stop fretting. Because we can just carry on with whatever stuff life throws of us, at us. And doesn't life throw some stuff at us? Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> Let me pose some questions to think about first, though. If God's ultimate plan is to establish an eternal family, why must we first experience this journey called life? If God's ultimate plan is for us to be with him in eternity, why do we first have to live on earth in a physical and often imperfect body? Why can't we skip episodes one and two and just go straight to eternity? Well, I believe the answer to these questions is that there are certain crucial criteria that we must first experience in this finite life to ensure that we are fit for eternal life. And that it's by looking at these two life-defining narratives that we'll gain a better understanding of the answer. So, the first one, the first life-defining narrative is what we would call or could call the life cycle journey. The Shakespeareans know about this, don't you? The seven ages of man. Um, and this revolves around what our bodies experience between birth and death. I was going to say we've got a picture of it, but we haven't got that. But the Shakespeare talked about, hey, <laughs> behind you. <laughs> there we have it. Yeah. Hey, well, that's wonderful. 
So, there you have this, this life cycle journey from the baby right through to the old man, Shakespeare's seven stages. Uh, I thought when I got these, I was at the pantaloon stage, you know, of uh, the shrunken, uh, is it the shrunken shank in Shakespeare, in as you like it, yeah. Anyway, you'll see underneath Ecclesiastes uh, 3, verses 1 to 2, which tells us there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. So let's briefly explore this first life-defining narrative called the life cycle journey. Once we're outside of the room, uh, they said the room, it is a room, isn't it, in a way, the womb. Once we're outside, <laughs> it's like the tomb, it's really a womb. <laughs> Once we're outside of the, <laughs> stop laughing. Once we're outside <laughs> of the womb, we begin our lives with inspiration. We breathe in and then we all end our lives with expiration. At birth, we are inspired to begin this exciting and challenging adventure. We all come out fists, ready for this exciting and challenging adventure. At death, with our final breath, the adventure expired. Gone. The only person different is Jesus. His head went down first, and then he expired. Furs goes down. We reach our use-by, our expiration date. But what's intriguing is that in between, we have to constantly inspire and expire, just to remain alive. So I suppose, philosophically, our lives are a mixture of victory, defeat, wow. satisfaction, disappointment. Accomplishment, failure, acquisition, loss, beauty, tragedy. And this human life cycle is just one aspect of how we perceive this dichotomy in action. God could have, could have created us as fully mature adults, couldn't he? But he didn't. Well, I'm pleased for the, you women he didn't because, you know, a 12 stone man is pretty difficult birth but, uh, <laughs> but but what he did it with Adam didn't he great he could have done the same with us but the physical and emotional adjustments required to transition through the various stages of life can be extremely exciting at times but also they can be horribly strenuously challenging at others so this first life-defining narrative explains why we can't just go straight into eternity. It hurts. It hurts for babies when they, you know, for the teeth as they push through tender gums. I remember it hurt my son as a teenager when he had an ultra-rapid knee uh, bone growth, you know, and the cartilage couldn't ca catch up and he was constantly falling. And I remember telling him off. He was constantly, I'm saying, what are you doing? And then we found out he had something called Osgood Slatter's disease. And he had to stop playing sport and rugby for three years. He grew, oh, about six, seven inches, seemed to be in a few weeks. It hurts when we suffer allergies, when we catch flu. It hurts when we break bones or try to defeat cancer. 
It hurts when we struggle with anxiety or fear, when we grow older and lose our vitality, experience a stroke or a heart attack, and it hurts to cope with dementia as we try to hold on to the, the one thing that's dear to us, the, the, the memory of our own story. But in God's infinite wisdom, he didn't choose to create us as mature adults. Instead, we're born into God's story as infants, forced to journey through these various stages of life in a fallen world as we continuously inspire and expire through our journey. Yet, this physical journey teaches us crucial lessons that prepare us for eternity. And perhaps this, I don't know whether we can get the next, uh, the next one up or not. Oh, no. Okay. Well, perhaps <laughs> what I'll tell you is that Paul, in the second letter to the Corinthians, I think he's pointing, what he points to there in, in, in chapter 4 and verses 16 to 18, I think he's referencing these challenges of growing old. He said, therefore, we don't lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieved. It doesn't seem light, but according to him, he's saying our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And in that, yes, they are in that sense. So we fix our eyes not on what's seen, but on what is unseen. For what's seen is temporary, but what's seen is eternal. Our souls become more inspired each day as we're inwardly being renewed. Because part of growing old is letting go of this physical world to take hold of the spiritual world to come. Our health is diminished. Our minds can deteriorate. And at some point we realize life just got to be about something else. And in this sense, the life cycle journey prepares us for eternity. Okay, so that brings us to the second of these life-defining narratives. And we call that, or we can call that, the life experience journey because this isn't about the body, what happens to the body. This is what happens to our souls as we experience uh, through our souls between birth and death, and that's the experience there. Life clearly carries great grief and many trials, which the Apostle Peter speaks about. And... He talks about this in first letter of Peter, chapter 1 and verse 7. He says these, he's talking about trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. This entire faith refining process is in preparation for when our Messiah comes to establish his eternal kingdom. Yes, in the third and final episode of God's story. But what's great about Peter writing this message for me is that if anyone, and I've got to be careful here, I'll probably meet up with him at some stage later. Uh, but what's great, if anyone needed more refining in his lifetime, it's this formerly pretty arrogant condescending kind of know-it-all called Peter. 
when Jesus talked about his suffering and imminent death that was going to happen to him, it's in Matthew's gospel, Peter pulls Jesus aside, and it's, this is Matthew 16, verse 22, and basically says, I'll paraphrase it, what the heck are you talking about? This is not what's going to happen. And bear in mind, he's talking to God here. Can you believe the cheek of the guy? Jesus immediately shoots back at Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. That's Matthew 16, verse 23. And then 10 chapters later, in Matthew 26, 33, a few hours before Jesus was arrested, he told his disciples they'd all run away when he was arrested. But super spiritual Peter proclaims, hey, even if all fall away on account for you, I never will. And paraphrasing again, Jesus says to him, let me tell you what's really going to happen tonight, Peter. This very night, before the cockerel crows, you'll disown me. Not just once, Peter three times you'll have three opportunities to get it right but you'll fail every time and yet Peter in his usual brash impetuous manner still insists he knows better than Jesus saying even if I have to die with you I'll never disown you later that night of course Peter does deny Jesus three times. And Luke describes the moment that Peter denied Jesus for the third time. It's in Luke 22, verses 60 to 62. And it's at the very moment of denial. Pete, and it says, Peter replied, somebody said, you're one of them. And Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the cock crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered word the Lord had spoken to him before the cock crows today you will disown me three times and he went outside and wept bitterly the exact moment of his betrayal Jesus made eye contact with Peter can you imagine how Peter felt all the gospel writers tell this story but it's only Luke that tells us that Jesus wept bitterly I'm glad he did because it's a crucial detail. It was a life-defining, game-changing moment for Peter. He's humiliated and his pride is finally broken. He's realized he's no super spiritual giant. He appears to be what he seems to hate the most, a spiritual fraud. It was the moment Jesus caught Peter's eye, mid-denial that Peter entered into the intense heat of the refiner's fire so the impurities of his faith could be removed. Even after Jesus was raised from the dead and he'd appeared to the disciples several times before ascending back to heaven, he and Peter hadn't yet had a chance to talk, to discuss really, well, how Peter's denial was so contrary to his initial bravado. And I... You know, so probably thinking, oh, my time's expired. I'm no way fit to be a follower of Jesus. In the final chapter of John's Gospel, it looks like Peter's gone back to fishing for fish and not for men. Isn't that typical of all of us? We so quickly want to go back into old lifestyles 
in the place of our failures and disappointments. I know for me, I'm straight in the kitchen banging about with pots and pans. Some of the other disciples joined him, staying out all night because that's the time we're told it's cooler and the fish tend to come to the surface and they can catch more fish. But they still didn't catch a single fish. So in John, it's uh, chapter 21 and verse 6, a familiar and yet unknown voice from the story calls out, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. I mean, please. These guys, they've been fishing since they were kids. What, what's, who's this guy think he is? Anyway, you know the story. They do what they're told and are able to, unable, I should say, to haul the nets in for so many fish. And of course, Jesus is the one that was on the shore. Even in the excitement of the reunion with Jesus, this must have been an awkward moment for Peter. Perhaps he'd been thinking, this will be the time he gets rid of me. But Jesus had made a fire, he gave them a meal of fish and bread. And it was Jesus who broke the ice. And he says to Peter, again paraphrase, it's in uh, John 21, 15. Hey, Peter, do you really love me more than the other disciples? Obviously, Jesus is referring back to the time when Peter foolishly proclaimed, even if everyone abandons you, I'll never abandon you. I'll go to my death for you. In a sense, Jesus is asking Peter, are you still clueless or have you learned something? And because Peter denied him three times, Jesus asks Peter the same question three times. It's difficult for us to grasp the gist of it in the English translation. A lot of you know this, but I'll go through it for those who don't. In English, we have only one word for love rather than three different words in the Greek of the New Testament. First one is eros, and that's the first of these three Greek words for love. It's an erotic or sexual kind of love, which is not applicable in this case, but it's worth bearing in mind when considering the kind of genesis of meaning behind the word love. So the next one is phileo. That's a brotherly kind of love, an expression of good friendship. Probably not the best way to describe a friend who'd take a bullet for you. That's agape, the third one. And that's an unconditional type of love. It's used to express the kind of love that God has for people and the love we should have for God, really. It's the kind of love that enables people to willingly die for the subject of their love. It's the kind of love Jesus expressed for us by dying on the cross. And in the next two verses of Scripture, the conversation between Jesus and Peter bounces back and forth between the use of phileo and agape. Paraphrasing, when Jesus asked the question the first time, he said, Peter, do you agape me? Do you love me like you professed earlier? So much you'd be willing to go to your death for me? To which Peter replies, uh, I phileo love you. I love you like a good friend. That's John 21, 15. And Jesus says, feed my lambs. Then for a second time, Jesus says, Peter, do you agape me? Will you die for me? Do you love me so much, so unconditionally that you'll die for me? And again, Peter says, I, 
I love you, Lord. I, I feel I love you. I love you as a close friend. This time Jesus says, take care of my sheep. And then the third time, Jesus asks this question of Peter. He modifies it, turns it round. He says, Peter, do you love me like a friend? Do you phileo love me? Now, understandably, by this time, Peter's getting a little bit on the defensive. You know this is how I love you, Lord. You knew it when you asked me the question the first time. It's all I've got. It's all I have. I, I wish I had more, but this is all I have to give you. Peter's telling reply reveals he's no longer a super spiritual, arrogant, clueless follower of Jesus. He's now authentic. He's more transparent. He's down to earth. He's no longer has an answer for everything. But the wonderful thing about this conversation is that although each time Peter says, I only phileo love you, Jesus, yet Jesus responds positively to Peter, saying, in effect, awesome. I can use a broken, self-aware guy like you. Feed my sheep. And you know, from that day forward, Peter was a changed man. He was doing spectacular things for the kingdom of God. His faith ultimately proved to be a genuine faith that was fit for eternity. So here we've heard Peter's story, part of this life-defining narrative of his life experience journey. But what's my story? And pointedly, what's your story? Because like Peter's story too, our story is the redemptive and transformative work our Father is making, using to make us fit for eternity. And coming back to Psalm 139 and God's book, his story where we're told all the days ordained for each of us, he wrote before one of them came to be, means that this emotionally moving three-part story of our Father God's is incomplete without your story and without my story. So, in conclusion to end this whole series, I'm going to present now just one final story from the Bible to illustrate how important our stories are in God's great trilogy. It's in chapter 9 of John's Gospel where he tells us the story of an adult man blind from birth and who was healed by Jesus on the Sabbath. In the rabbinic teaching of Jesus' day, if you had, I'm talking about rabbinic rather than biblical now. And in that day, if you had such an affliction, it was connected to some kind of sin. So the disciples of Jesus asked, asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents that he was born blind? I mean, for me, it's a peculiar one. Because if the man himself who sinned and he was born blind, he would have had to have sinned within the womb, which seems a bit crazy. But anyway, Jesus replies, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Two things need explanation here. First, in rabbinic teaching, there were three types of miracle that only Messiah, when he came, would be capable of performing. The first was that of cleansing a Jewish leper. 
then we have the casting out of deaf and dumb demons, and finally, that of healing someone born blind. The other thing is that in rabbinic teaching, healing on the Sabbath is totally unacceptable. It's a no-no. So, after hearing the story from this former blind man as to how he'd received his sight, the Pharisees start harassing him. They then start badgering the man's parents, asking them how he'd been healed. His parents were terrified. They knew these Pharisees. They knew they'd be thrown out of the synagogue. They had to be so careful. And so he's, but he starts badgering them, and they're so terrified. Um, so, well, we've got to be careful here. So they say, well, our son's of age. Ask him. He can speak for himself. And at this, they approach the man a second time, and they say, give glory to God. In other words, tell the truth. We know this man's a sinner. But by this time, this guy having consistent, you know, having been consistently pressed by the Pharisees to tell them what they want to hear, this guy's had enough of their accusations and insinuations. And he says, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. That's in John 9, verse 25. It's like he was saying to the Pharisees, look, I'm not going to let you put me into a theological compartment of your making. There's only one thing I know, that's that I used to be blind, and now I see. That's my story. The simple story of his ordained days, that God might be displayed in his life. God's redemptive story without his was incomplete. And without our stories, God's story is also incomplete. You and I, we believers, are living, breathing testimonies. And the best way to tell our story is just the way this man told it. I used to be blind, but now I see. We don't need to get all spiritual about it. Perhaps in simple street language, it can be, you know, of our day, it can be, I really don't know the technical details involved. It could have something to do with predestination or maybe free will. It's all interesting stuff. But the simple truth is that I used to, I used to be a certain way, but now I'm a very different person. And I only have God to thank for my transformation. And that's why the journey is just as important as the destination. And is that the end? Not really. In the greatest story ever written, as we ride off into the sunset, the end is just a new beginning eternally. Thank you for listening. Thank you, David.